Welcome to the Peds Ethics Podcast, where we talk to leaders in pediatric bioethics about a hot topic or current controversy. Here's your host, John Lantos, from the Children's Mercy Bioethics Center in Kansas City. Hi, everybody. This is John Lantos from Children's Mercy Hospital Bioethics Center in Kansas City, Missouri, coming to you back again with our pediatric ethics podcast. We are thrilled to have with us today Erica Salter from St. Louis University, where she is the director of PhD programs and associate professor of healthcare ethics and of pediatrics, and at the Albert Ganegi Center for Healthcare Ethics. Professor Salter has written some of the most insightful articles in bioethics today about the best interest standard and how it's used in decision-making in pediatrics. So welcome, Erica. It's so nice to have you here. Well, thanks, John. It's a pleasure to be with you today. How did you get interested in best interest standard and start thinking about that as something you wanted to write about? I got started on the topic really as a graduate student. As I was reading about decision-making in adult populations, I thought maybe these questions would look a little different when we look at the context of pediatric decision-making. And that context really was just fascinating to me because unlike in the adult context when we're dealing primarily with patient and provider, in the pediatric context, we're dealing with sort of more of a triad, you know, a triangle of decision makers. There's the provider, the child, and then, of course, the parents and the influence of those sort of parental decision makers or surrogate decision makers, I think, is more obvious in the pediatric context, but of course has some interesting, I think, effects when you look at the adult context as well. The history of the best interest standard is fascinating. It wasn't developed for use in clinical ethics consultation. Do you think it fits? Do you think it helps us? Uh, That's a great question. You know, it's a standard that has received a lot of criticism in recent years um, by bioethicists and clinicians alike, myself included. You know, if you'd like, we can get into some of those critiques. But I do think that the phrase, the best interest of the child, will always be a part of our common parlance, um, especially in pediatric medicine. Uh, quite frankly, I just think it's simply t- too convenient a term. And um, the rhetorical power that it wields to, you know, rally parties around a common cause, I think, is in some instances irresistible. Um, So, for example, you know, even though I'm a a kind of a a big critic of the best interest standard, when I lead an ethics consult, I often begin with something like, thank you for gathering here today. We're all here because we care about this child and we want to do what's best for her. Of course, the actual content of the consult will probably be negotiating and determining how various people define best and what conflicts arise. But in this context, the best interest of the child is operating, I think, more as a rallying cry and less as a standard of decision-making. So um, as a standard of decision-making, though, I think there are a lot of critiques uh, that that might be deserving. And if you'd like, we can talk about those. Yeah, let's start to go through those. Since it's fascinating that even as a critic of the standard, you find yourself, what, holding it up as uh, an aspirational goal, perhaps, when you start these meetings. Let's talk about some of the powerful criticisms of, of, of the standard. What do you think are the most devastating ones? I think if we ask, is the best interest standard, should it be the go-to legal and moral principle for pediatric decision-making? The answer to this question depends, um, I think, entirely on what we expect a standard of pediatric decision-making to do. 
right? So what is the purpose of a standard of pediatric decision-making? There can be a lot of confusion around this, and I think we might be using the same term to mean different things or to serve different purposes. This was, I think, exactly Loretta Koppelman's aim when she wrote an article about the fact that perhaps the BIS actually has three different roles that it plays. It might be serving as an ideal, it might be serving as a threshold for intervention, or it might be serving as a standard of reasonableness. Buchanan and Brock have also written on this, and I think they distill it very nicely into two possible purposes, right? A, uh, a guidance principle or perhaps an intervention principle. So depending on how you answer the question, what is the purpose of the standard, um, I think the best interest standard will fare better or worse. So if we talk about best interest as an intervention principle, I think that that's probably the most important role that we want to articulate as bioethicists and as clinicians. We should talk about the standard as a threshold for state intervention. So what I mean by this, of course, is, you know, in what context or for what reasons could a judge or a court justifiably override a parent's healthcare decision um, for their own child? In this context, uh, I think we need to be um, of supreme clarity, precision and consistency. And I think importantly in this context, because this is a principle that is societally enforced by the state, again, by courts and judges, that whatever we use to serve this role must enjoy wide support by, you know, a good majority of society. Back to the question of clarity, precision, consistency. I just, I don't think the, the best interest standard has historically been able to achieve any of these. Even if we assume maybe that everyone can agree that a best interest determination involves, let's say, a calculation of benefits and harms, and that calculation perhaps leads us to a decision that maximizes benefits and minimizes harms for a, a particular child, we're still left with, I think, really important questions like what constitutes benefit and what constitutes harm? Um, what are the range of benefits and harms should, that we should consider? Should we only look at physiological benefits or should we also look at things like psychological, relational, emotional, spiritual benefits and harms? And then perhaps, you know, how should we assign value or balance these benefits and harms depending on, you know, your particular worldview or value set? These questions really could be answered in, I think, infinite ways. So when, when you, John, say best interest and when I say best interest, it's very probable that we're talking about different things. So I would say, you know, it's, it's unclear what anyone is referring to when they, when they invoke the best interest standard. That's, that's one, one major criticism. I have a few others if you'd like to get into them. Let's go through them. And then once we've done that, we'll talk about what's left in the rubble. That is, if the best interest standard mm-hmm. crumbles as a threshold for intervention, what should we use? But go through a couple of the other critiques first. Even if we could perhaps agree on exactly what interests count, like, so let's, let's take for granted my first critique, right? Let's say you and I can agree on what interests count and how to balance those interests and, and our calculation yields the same result. Usually a strict application of a best interest standard often requires things that are just simply unreasonable for parents and families to accommodate, right? If we're literally looking at maximizing all the possible benefits to a particular child and minimizing all the possible harms, the results can sometimes sort of seem out of place, I I would say, with other types of decisions. So, for example, you and other pediatricians would probably say that it's strictly in the best interest of my two young kids if they don't watch a lot of TV, right? Um, But guess what? My kids watch TV. (laughs) 
And my justification for this isn't necessarily that it's better for them, actually. My justification is that it's better for me, that it allows me to take a shower in peace, or it allows me and my husband to have a conversation that isn't interrupted every minute and a half. (laughs) You know, you might ask, is that a legitimate decision? So let me interrupt on that. It seems like what you're describing is the appropriateness of considering interests other than the child's. Absolutely. And so while we probably both agree that it would be better if your children watched less television. We also think it would be good for you to be able to read a book or take a shower once in a while, and therefore your interests outweigh theirs without undermining the best interest standard, just undermining it as an absolute and solitary consideration in decision-making. Am I getting that right? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, what I'm describing here, this this kind of, you know, micro decision that parents make, these are the types of decisions parents make, you know, all the time, decisions that negotiate the various interests of all members of a family. They do so in nuanced ways and dynamic ways. A lot of them have fairly low stakes. Um, and when they do so, they rarely, I would say, they rarely think only about one member of the family, right? Because decisions rarely affect only one member of the family. So um, I would think it, it would be sort of unreasonable to expect parents to make healthcare decisions differently. And I, I do think that, you know, at least some form of the best interest standard is asking parents to do just that, to consider only the interests of the, the child that is the patient, So we've got two major criticisms on the table. One, that people who use the term best interest disagree about what exactly it means, and so you could argue it doesn't mean anything at all. The other is that other interests matter, and what we need to do is weigh those other interests against what we think is in a particular individual child's best interest in a particular circumstance. Are there others? Sounds like the best interest standard is badly wounded. Do you have a death blow? We've talked about how perhaps it's inconsistently appealed to and maybe inconsistently applied. We don't really have the same idea in mind when we talk about best. We've talked about how the best interest standard um, perhaps doesn't, is maybe unreasonably demanding and potentially too narrow if we take, you know, sort of a traditional or a classic version of the best interest standard. I think that second critique um, does kind of um, funnel into a more specific critique about the best interest standard, which is that it it really, I think, is an artificial depiction of what family decision-making is, and it fails to respect sort of the, the family unit as such insofar as, um, you know, family decision-making involves the negotiation of many interests there should be some acknowledgement that um, different types of interests might be at play for different families. I mean, I do want to sort of get back to the role that a best interest standard might play as a threshold for state intervention, because I think, again, that that is one of the most important standards for us to clearly articulate, because this is really where the state can exert force over families and parents. Again, I don't think that the best interest standard really achieves clarity or precision or consistency. What might achieve that? I think it's um, we need to lower the bar and maybe look at something like a basic interest standard, not a best interest standard. So what I mean here is maybe we're aiming not to maximize benefits and completely minimize harms, but we're aiming at some sort of minimum threshold of care, you know, meeting a child's basic needs. There are a few different articulations of this 
standard, um, probably the most popular or you know well-known ones in pediatric ethics um, are Deakema's harm principle and maybe Laney Ross's uh, constrained parental autonomy model. And I think that these models, you know, I'll talk specifically about the harm principle. I think I think they fare much better as an intervention principle because they get us much closer to our goal. So first, I think the harm principle acknowledges that in decisions about state intervention, we actually we aren't really interested in what's best or ideal, right? We're interested in determining and enforcing kind of a minimum threshold of obligatory care. We kind of, we'd want to take very seriously the fact that the state is intervening on kind of natural family decision-making. And we want, we want to make sure that um, whatever standard we articulate is very clear and it probably needs to be a pretty minimum standard. Um, And I think, we're probably better able to agree on minimum standards than we are able to agree on ideal standards. That's kind of an interesting, I don't know, an interesting empirical question if we did surveys about that, but that would be my guess. Another benefit to the harm principle that um, I find to be particularly compelling is that Dikema turns our attention to process. So he introduces considerations of transparency and generalizability. And these are, I think, really helpful justificatory tools, right? If we're trying to offer the best moral justification that we can for intervening, um, we want to make sure that we're doing so in a, um, a strong, a defensible way, in a generalizable way. So I think maybe listeners or certainly you are familiar with the, the eight questions that DECMA asks us to consider when we when we ask the question, is it justifiable to intervene on a decision? Those eight questions, I think, thereby allow us to kind of systematize the process a bit, right? It gives us a little more anchor points on which we can um, make better decisions and more consistent decisions. And, And essentially says that, no, you don't have to do what's best for a child. All, All you need to do is avoid things that are demonstrably harmful to the child. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so when you talk about lowering the bar, that's that's putting it pretty low. I think an interesting critique is like, is the bar too low? So as I think about these questions, I think about what's at stake. And I think different people will answer that question differently, right? Like what is the minimum threshold? Um, what How low is too low? But what's at stake here is, I think, a very serious act, which is, intervening and coercing a family to make a decision that they wouldn't otherwise make. So I think that that might justify a low bar. So you do ethics consultations in your hospital, correct? We do. And uh, how often do you consider seeking state intervention and how often would you estimate you follow through on that? Very infrequently, we do think of state intervention as a last resort intervention, and we really do only consider that in cases where, well, a few things have to be true, right? So not only is the decision that the parents are making, does it have to be come at what's become a standard, so significant risk of serious harm, right? So I think that that's kind of what we ask, and usually we're looking at significant risk of serious physical harm here, so things like death or permanent disability, um, the second criteria, which is something that we haven't really talked about much today, but it's, is the parental decision truly intractable? And have we made a good faith effort to really understand where they're coming from and perhaps find areas of compromise with them? So again, when you move to the, the last resort of state intervention, I think you clearly set up a dynamic that is us versus them and one that's antagonistic that I don't think ultimately serves 
what we're aiming for, which is a therapeutic alliance with parents. You know, we want to be on the same team as them and calling in the state um, usually, I think, produces mistrust and can really harm that relationship. So I would say to answer your question infrequently and how, how often do we follow through even less frequently, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Part, part of the reason I ask the question is because I was just noticing in our consultation service in our ethics committee, we often talk about the harm principle or the best interest standard. We often talk about uh, seeking court orders for treatment, but it's extremely rare that uh, we actually do it. We usually manage to find a compromise, as you say, that preserves uh, something of a therapeutic alliance. Yeah, and I, I would say that's a big win for children's hospitals. I, I mean, I would say, you know, I don't know the details of your consults, but I bet they look fairly similar to ours. And I would almost always rather find that compromise in a way that preserves the relationship um, rather than sort of, you know, escalate it up, so to speak. Many of the intractable disagreements that have made the news in recent years have been situations where parents wanted continued treatment and doctors and nurses thought it was inappropriate. Do you think it ever harms a child to keep that child alive? Oh, this is such an interesting and important question, John. So, you know, the harm principle, I think if I'm representing Doug's work correctly, I really think it it applies to the opposite situation, right? So when providers or physicians are recommending a treatment and parents are um, rejecting that recommended treatment, but what you're speaking of is the opposite situation where parents are asking for aggressive care and providers are saying, you know, enough is enough, and perhaps they're making claims about this child is suffering, um, this child is in pain. Essentially, I think in those situations, the claim that is being made, probably it's not, it's rarely articulated this way, but this child is better off dead is how I would characterize those sorts of claims. And I don't say that to mean that there is any malintent on behalf of providers. So I think these decisions really come down to judgments of suffering and quality of life. And when I think about suffering in the pediatric context, um, honestly, what I think about are nurses, bedside nurses, for these kiddos that are, you know, in under very aggressive and complex medical interventions. And sometimes these are the medical interventions that nursing staff or physician staff um, feel are actually doing the pain, the harm, the suffering to the child. So, it, you know, there's some agency, perhaps. The nurses feel as though they themselves are causing suffering because they have to, you know, change out lines or adjust the baby in their bed or, you know, all the regular sorts of nursing care that, that are provided. That can be very distressing for nurses um, and physicians. And I would never question the fact that caring for a child that you think is suffering at the hands of medicine is difficult, nor would I ever question that that experience might be causing actual suffering in the provider, right? So I would take that really seriously. But all, I say all of that first because I think more importantly is that judgments about suffering in children are very hard to make externally. We really can't know if a child is suffering um, I mean, we can ask children, older children that are able to communicate with us. We can ask them. We can hear their voices. And I think we should do so as often as we can. But usually in these cases, we're dealing with kids that can't communicate with us. And so we're just sort of looking at evidence, at behaviors that might indicate to us that they are in pain or suffering. 
And really it comes down to, I think, you know, is this, how great is this suffering that we're guessing this child is experiencing? And really is, are they better off dead in this situation? Yeah. It's something that I think neither the best interest principle nor the harm principle was designed to address, but both are brought out when these controversies arise. Any, any last thoughts on where we might go from here in improving the process of making decisions in these contentious situations? Well, I think it's important to recognize that while, you know, the uh, intervention principle or the role that a best interest standard or any standard of decision might, standard of decision making might play as an intervention principle is very important. I think it's really important that we also recognize and remember that the vast majority of medical decisions being made for kids are not happening in this territory. Um, You know, rarely are we thinking about state intervention, meaning for the most part, we do a good job of aligning with families. You know, we do a good job of finding compromises or common territory and values, and we're able to establish that therapeutic alliance and make good decisions for kids that aren't contentious. So I would say, you know, that should give us some hope. I also think that in that territory, we, we need some sort of other principle, and perhaps this is the guidance principle that Buchanan and Brock were talking about. You know, not, we're not talking about state intervention anymore. What we're talking about is the territory of conversation, of relationships, of shared decision-making. Um, and it, in that territory, we really need to ask what types of values should clinicians be advocating for? Because I think, you know, parents frequently want the opinion of doctors and doctors and other clinicians frequently want to give that opinion. Are they allowed to give any opinion that they believe to be true personally? Are there maybe sets of values that are more appropriate given their professional identity? I think these are interesting questions, Um, you know, sort of looking at the most common types of medical decisions, which I do think exist above this minimum threshold of state intervention. What happens in that context Um, I think it it would be very well served if we could really sit down and think through a little more clearly what moral imperatives or moral guidance should be at play in that context. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about all this. I've told you in the past that your papers on best interest are one of the favorites in our pediatric bioethics certificate program here at Children's Mercy. So I'm sure the students will enjoy this podcast as well. Well, thank you so much, John. Sure. I've been talking with uh, Erica Salter, who's director of the PhD program and an associate professor of healthcare ethics at the St. Louis University and the Albert Ganegi Center for Healthcare Ethics. I'm John Lantos, and this is the Pediatric Bioethics Podcast from Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. Thanks for listening.